Let's turn, if you would please, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This morning for our text, I'm going to read verses 17 through 22. The scripture reads, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Here in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, we're asking the question, what must one do to obtain eternal life? Of course, we're continuing in our series, Mark's Biblical Answers to Puzzling Questions. We've been looking at one question per chapter. Rather than going through verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, we've just been dealing with one message per chapter. And this question today is one that's on the minds and hearts of people all around the world. What must one do to obtain eternal life? We mentioned early in this series that the Gospel of Mark touches on a wide variety of different subjects, and this chapter is no different We see verses 1 through 12, Jesus addresses the subject of marriage and divorce. Verses 13 through 16, he blesses the children. Our text here, 17 through 22, Jesus speaks with the rich young ruler. Verses 23 through 31, Jesus declares, with God all things are possible. In verses 32, 33, and 34, Jesus speaks of his coming death. And then that James and John's request is recorded in verses 35 through 45. And then at verses 46 through 52, we see Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10 begins with our Lord returning to Judea and beginning the last of his public ministry. Now this is a lengthy chapter. Chapter 6, which has 56 verses, and chapter 14, which has 72 verses, are the only chapters longer than this chapter 10. What we see here in chapter 10 parallels what we find in Matthew chapters 19 and 20. And as best I I can tell, with just one exception, Matthew 19 and 20 and Mark 10 contain the same material and present it in the same sequence. But the story we look at today, it's one that in the Gospels gives us a clear understanding of Christ's desire to recognize the difference between man's view of salvation and God's view of salvation. 
Its main character is known as the rich young ruler, and he's known as such because of the combined picture gleaned from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, that chapter 19, verse 20, the scripture says, And the young man saith unto him, Here in Mark, it refers to the fact that he had great possessions, so he was young, he was rich. And in Luke 18, 18, we see he's a ruler. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master. So that's why he is referred to as the rich young ruler by so many. The dominant theme of the young man's experience is his desperate search for eternal life. Jesus takes the man's desperation and shocks those present in his response. How? By declaring desperation, sincerity, eagerness, and actively seeking eternal life are not enough. That went contrary to the thinking of, today, of that day, and it is contrary to the thinking of many today. You see, to inherit eternal life takes much more than just desiring to possess it. So we'll see in this passage, Jesus exposes the young man's misunderstanding of salvation and eternal life, and he does so in three ways. First, he addresses the young man's sincerity. Secondly, he addresses the young man's self-righteousness. And third, he addresses his self-sufficiency. So notice with me in verses 17 and 18, Jesus addresses the young man's sincerity. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Notice first the young man's request. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Notice how he asked. First, he humbled himself before Jesus. He honored our Lord as few other people did. Notice he came running and kneeled at Jesus' feet. The Pharisees certainly didn't do that. They looked down their noses at him with disdain. The crowds didn't do that. They rushed him that he might perform miracles of healing and such for them. But here this rich young ruler saw in Jesus something more than others. And he ran and kneeled, bowed before him. But what an amazing sight this is. The rich young aristocrat falling at the feet of the penniless prophet of Nazareth. He eagerly sought and reverenced Jesus. By the way, kneeling or bowing is an act of showing respect. Abraham bowed himself to the people of the land in Genesis 23. Jacob bowed himself to Esau in Genesis 33. And the brethren of Joseph bowed before him as governor of the land in Genesis 43, verse 28. This is also frequently mentioned in Scripture as an act of adoration to the Lord. Psalm 95, verse 6. O come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Ephesians 3, 14 declares, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, this young man humbled himself before the Lord. But he also acknowledged Jesus was an honorable person to be highly regarded. 
Notice a couple things here. He addressed Jesus as high a title as a man could address a revered teacher. He called him good master. This phrase meant good teacher or good rabbi. He couldn't praise him any more greatly than calling him that. But there was a problem with his acknowledgement of the Lord. He only saw Jesus as a highly regarded teacher. He didn't consider Jesus to be the divine son of God. He only considered Jesus to be a mere man, not God. He only thought of Jesus as one capable of teaching great truths, but not being the true and living God. Because the man's praise and honor of Jesus were not enough, our Lord corrected this man in his approach. Notice verse 18, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So the young man addressed Jesus by saying, Good master, and straightway Jesus correcting him. He was saying to the young man, No flattery. Don't call me good. Reserve that word for God. It looks like Jesus was trying to push the young man away. Trying to throw some cold water on his enthusiasm, but he wasn't doing that. What he was saying here was stop and think. Don't get caught up in a moment of emotion. Jesus wasn't putting putting him off or pushing him away. He wanted him to consider the depth or the import of what he had actually said. So here if we look at this and understand Jesus' response. He said, God alone is good. No man in comparison to God can ever stand before the Lord in righteousness. Jesus was indicating, if I am but a mere man, I'm not good, and I don't have the words of eternal life. How do we know that? For the scripture declared in Psalms, and Paul repeated it, quoted it in Romans, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one, he said. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So Jesus said, if I'm just a man, I'm not good. But he said, if I am God, I am good, and I do have the words of eternal life. So what he's trying to get this young man to see, he has addressed him as good master, but only one truly should bear that title. And our Lord is trying to get this young man to see there's a difference between somebody who is called a good man and somebody who is God. For only God can be good. Only God has the words of eternal life. This was the declaration Peter made in John chapter 6, verse 68, when he said, Thou hast the words of eternal life. Yes, it is Jesus who declared in 824, John, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Later he said in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He's saying, I'm the way you need to come. I'm the one you need to turn to. I'm the one you need to listen to. Why? Because I am God. He declared his position before the peoples that he preached to and he taught all throughout his public ministry. And this young man was confused on this matter. He saw him as a good man, but not God. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, But for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ was 100% man, but he was 100% God. He was the only man who who could declare, I am good, I am God. So Jesus addresses this man's misunderstanding and his sincerity. Then he goes on in verses 19 and 20 to deal with the man's self-righteousness. Notice our Lord's response here. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. It has been said, no story in the Gospels so lays down the essential Christian truth that respectability is not enough. Living a good life, trying to do right. This is the goal of many, but that is is not a goal that will grant eternal life. This young man was caught up in the things he had done, and he was missing the point. See, Jesus here quotes commands 5 through 10. And one thing to note, with the exception of honor thy father and thy mother, they're all negative. Without hesitation, the man said, I've kept them all. In effect, he was saying what? He said, in my life, I haven't harmed anyone. You know, that was probably true. He was a young man of character. He was a young man of renown. He was a man given a position of authority at an early age, likely because of his high moral character. So he probably could honestly say, as as best he knew, I've never harmed anybody. But the real question here isn't what you haven't done. The question is, what have you done? The question of this man was even more pointed, for Jesus was asking, what good have you done with all your possessions? What good have you done with your wealth? What good have you done for others? See, Jesus was emphasizing here something contrary to the Jewish way of thinking. To the Jews, respectability on the whole consisted of not doing things. But Christianity is based upon what we do. You see, to say, well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I've never been there, and I've never said that, you know, that's one thing, but what do you do? For the Lord, what do you do in your response of uh, living for Christ? That's why he and a lot of folks fall short. In Matthew, two words are added to his question. In Matthew, we say the scripture. We see the scripture says, "What good thing shall I do?" This was his second major error. His first was not recognizing Jesus was the Christ; he was just a man. His second error was in revealing his was a religion of works, not of faith. He thought man man himself could secure eternal life by being good. He thought if he just did enough good things and didn't do enough bad things, that would secure his place in heaven and give him a favor before the Lord. Some would have said he, like so many in the world today, believed his acts of morality and good works would even out his balance sheet and make him acceptable to God. Isn't that the way a lot of folks look at salvation today? 
to say, I'm going to live my life as best I can. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to pay my debt. I'm going to treat others kind. And when I get to heaven, God's going to weigh out the good versus the bad. And I hope I've done enough good to please the Lord and he'll let me into heaven. That's not the way it works. But that's exactly the way this way and literally millions and millions of people view eternal life. So again, Jesus had to correct him by striking at the root of his problem. The man failed to love his neighbor as himself. Remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus was approached and questioned by a lawyer, a keeper of the law. He said, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? Jesus answered him this way. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. But he didn't stop there. He went on to say, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets Jesus said you can take all 614 commandments in the Old Testament, all of the laws the Jews held dear, and he said every one of them can be traced back to these two truths or these two expectations. Love God, love others. Everything else will fall into place. Well, what if we don't? James chapter 2, verse 10 declared, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So what Jesus was saying is it doesn't matter if you can declare you haven't murdered, you haven't stolen, you haven't lied, you haven't committed adultery. He said if you don't show love to others, you've not obeyed the law. And thus not obeying the law, you've broken it. And thus having broken the law of God, you stand guilty before the thrice holy God of heaven. So this man was being confronted by our Lord. And our Lord was showing him, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you cannot live a good enough life to please God. The man did make a phenomenal claim. He said he had kept all six of those commandments that Jesus quoted. But we know he had not kept them perfectly, not in God's eyes, not in the spirit in which God intended them. Jesus was now ready to show the young man what he meant. He was saying, keep the commandments dealing with your neighbor. This is especially needed by rulers and the rich because they so often have a tendency to neglect the care of those who are down and out. Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. This is not about you. It's about your coming to me, himself. What shall I do, he asked, to inherit eternal life? It's not the good thing that one can do. It is not the good things that one can do. No. 
It is trusting in Jesus Christ, recognizing he is God and accepting the free offer of eternal life from him. How do we know? Jesus addressed that in other passages of scripture, specifically Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Listen to this. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Wow, how many of us can say we've done that? People will stand before the Lord and say, look what we've done. Jesus' response to them will be, then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Isaiah tells us all of our righteousnesses, all the best we can do are nothing but filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. The righteousness that mankind can offer will come short every time of the holiness of God. That's why the scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And as a result, nothing we can do is going to make a difference in regard to our desperate search for eternal life. Paul wrote of this in Galatians 6.16 when he said, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ. To the Ephesians he wrote, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To Timothy he wrote, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And to Titus, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Yes, Jesus is pointing out to this man his self-righteousness isn't going to cut it. It was Dr. M.R. DeHaan who wrote, Before an individual can be saved, he must first learn that he cannot save himself. That is a lesson many today need to come to realize. And then we note Jesus not only addressed this man's sincerity, his self-righteousness, he also addressed his self-sufficiency in Mark chapter 10 verses 21 and 22. And Jesus beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Before we go any further, let me clarify one thing here. Jesus is not contradicting himself. He's not saying in one passage you can't save yourself or you can't do something to prove you're worthy of salvation. And then he's not saying here you can only be saved by giving away your wealth and helping others. He's not contradicting himself in this passage. He is pointing out a weakness of this individual. How do we know that? He penetrated this man's innermost being and sensed a deep longing and earnestness. Jesus detected in this man's heart a true desire for eternal life. But that desire wasn't enough. 
Notice this critical point. The love of Jesus for a person's soul is not enough to save them. Jesus saw in this man a desire for eternal life, and Jesus loved him. The fact of the matter is, Jesus loves everyone. God so loved the world. Not just certain people in the world, not just a certain nationality. God loved everyone so much that he gave his only begotten son. Christ loves all mankind. There's not a child born into this world that takes a breath of life apart from the love of God. He loves everyone. But just because Jesus loves us, that's not enough. The world lacks understanding in this matter. The love of Christ is great, but his love alone is not enough. You know the Lord cannot and will not save someone against their will. I realize that goes against teaching of of some popular theologians today who believe God saves someone whether or not they want to. They believe God's grace is so irresistible and God's love is so dominant that a person will be saved whether they want to or not. I believe that's wrong. How do we know? God gives man a choice. We see that repeatedly mentioned in Scripture, such as, well, let me ask you this, who were God's chosen people from the beginning? The Israel, the Jews. If anybody would be saved, don't you think it would be all the Jews? Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jesus declared, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. And ye would not. The Jews of Jesus' day rejected him, refused to see him as their Messiah, their King. Proverbs one twenty four tells us, Because I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. Hosea 11.7 And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. God gives mankind a choice. And every man, woman, boy, or girl has the privilege, the opportunity, the responsibility to choose Christ over this world. This young man had that same privilege. He was asking, what do I do for eternal life? What, what do I do to, to get eternal life? Jesus is stand before him as the Son of God, indicating you just trust in me. But Jesus knew this young man's heart and knew he trusted in the wealth of this world. And as a result, this young man rejected Christ for verse 21 says, This man was sad at that saying and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. 
This young man rejected Jesus for three reasons. Number one, unbelief. He failed to see Jesus was the Christ, was their Messiah. He rejected Jesus Christ because of self-righteousness and pride. His concept of religion was keeping the law by obeying a list of do's and don'ts rather than trusting Christ as his Savior and securing God's favor and acceptance. But also he rejected Christ because of his love of the world. He was unwilling to give up the comfort and possessions he had obtained. You see, he made the mistake of loving the things of the world more than he loved people, more than he loved the hope of eternal life, and more than he loved Jesus Christ. He said, this is what I have in this life, and yet you want me to forsake that and trust Jesus. By the way, nowhere do we find in Scripture that we are required to give away everything we possess in order to receive Jesus as Savior. What Christ was doing was exposing this man's excessive love for self and for the world and his lack of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 6, 9, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Love God, love the world. This young man made his choice when he walked away grieved and sorrowful because of his wealth. How sad. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. He that trusteth in his riches shall fall, but the righteous shall flourish as a branch. Man's way leads to a hopeless end, but God's way leads to an endless hope. This young man who so desired to have eternal life, missed out on it because of his self-righteousness, his self-sufficiency. Though he was sincere in his approach to the Lord, he wasn't willing to trust Jesus Christ and accept him. Man's problem as revealed in these verses can be summarized in three facts. Verse 18, to praise Christ is not enough. Verses 19 and 20, to be respectable is not enough. And verse 21, to be loved by Jesus is not enough. We're not saved based on what we do or don't do. We're saved by being confronted with the word of God and acknowledging we are a sinner in need of a savior. D.L. Moody said the difference between religion and salvation can be summed up in two words. Do and done. A lot of folks in this world are hung up on what they need to do to obtain eternal life, and they miss out on the truth that it has already been done. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross. I'll close with this short illustration. Did you know that if you take a bumblebee and drop it into an open tumbler, a tall glass, That bumblebee will stay there until it dies, unless it's taken out. It never sees the means of escape at the top. 
It persists in trying to find its way out, flying in circles around the bottom, looking for a way to escape. It's seeking a way where one does not exist. And it will die. You know, in many ways, a lot of people are like that bumblebee. They're struggling about with all their problems and frustrations, seeking a way of deliverance where none exists without recognizing their hope is above them. They need to turn to the Lord rather than the things of this world, rather than trying to accomplish by their own tasks, their own strength, their own means, their own abilities, what they truly cannot do. Someone said salvation is a work of God for man rather than a work of man for God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to obtain eternal life? The work has already been done. What one needs to do is believe in the one who performed that great work.